0: If you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to the book of Luke, fourth book in the New Testament, Luke chapter 9. We've been studying through the book of Luke, for those of you that may have not been with us for a good while now. And we've actually been in chapter 9 for a good while now, and uh, we won't get out of it for a few more weeks. Um, But we're here in in Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 45. And let me just read verse 37 here of Luke chapter 9 as we get started. Luke 9, verse 37 says, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met Him. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met Him. Last week we considered the the transfiguration and we've been answering this question who is jesus for uh, many weeks and and the ultimate answer to that question who is jesus is is found in that moment when when he ascends the mountain he's there and he as it were peels back the veil of his flesh and shows his glory to the disciples to the three that were there peter james and john and 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 he and we see also the the cloud d- descend and the father speaks from heaven and says this is who jesus is This is my beloved son, my chosen one. This is my my most loved son whom I have chosen. Peter and James and John are there and, and they're privileged to see this, to behold the majesty of God. Can you imagine being there? What an experience that would have been. And the text tells us that they didn't tell anyone about it. Actually, some of the other accounts say that Jesus told them not to tell anyone about it but they it, it was a highlight of their life peter writes about it later on in second peter uh, he didn't keep it a secret forever he says in second peter chapter 1 for when he received when jesus received honor and glory from the father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven we were with him on the holy mountain i mean he's just still reveling in that so it's a high point for the, the disciples. But I imagine it was actually in Jesus' own ministry probably a high point as well. That that he's there in the presence of his father, hearing this affirming voice. This is my son. This is my, my beloved one, my chosen one. And it was this reminder of the mission that he had been sent to accomplish. The, the, the heart of the father is again revealed. And he, and he talks with Moses and Elijah. And they know exactly what's going on. And he, he speaks with, with those who understand him. But then we find in verse 37 what happens. They came down from the mountain. They had a mountaintop experience. Uh, you know that phrase, to have a mountaintop experience? I don't know if it comes from this or if it comes maybe from that, that moment when you climb a mountain and, and you see everything that's around you, but it, it describes some sort of incredible, extraordinary event in your life, right? Something that's, that's different from, from the norm, something that fills you with, uh, n- with joy and excitement and, and new energy. But by definition, a mountaintop experience doesn't last forever, right? You get to the mountain, and then what happens? you got to come down. You can't live there. I mean, that's what Peter wanted to do, right? Let's just stay here forever, Lord. Uh, but they couldn't. They had to come down. And it didn't take long for that mountaintop experience. It didn't take long after that mountaintop experience for the realities of life to hit them with Full force. We we find there in that first verse that a great crowd met them. So they come off the mountain, and immediately this this crowd is there, and they're in desperate need. They they've left the cloud of the presence of God, and they enter as it were the the fog of war. I think is what we might describe it as, where they see the 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 powers of good and evil in this world. But this isn't uncommon for us, is it, that we have a mountaintop experience we have this something that's outside of the norm that that's this wonderful beautiful thing and it and it fills us with energy and then right after that we're thrust into the valley and God is good i mean he gives us glimpses of of his glory and gifts of his grace and presence moments when it's when it's clear who he is and and who we are and it's clear why he's come and you know we gather on sunday mornings isn't that part of why we gather i mean it's this this gathering where we're reminded of the love of god the goodness of god the love of his people we we rejoice in the beauty of the gospel we we partake of the lord's supper together and then we find ourselves in the afternoon and we're just hounded by temptation. Or, or we leave the presence of God and the presence of God's people and we're, we're overwhelmed with, with loneliness or depression. We might spend time in God's Word in the morning and, and we're rejuvenated only to have the realities of life overwhelm us even before we get up out of that chair. We're starting to think about how things are coming at us over and over again this day. Maybe you've gone on maybe a conference or a, or a, a retreat. I remember camp. As a kid it was always like this, it's, it's you get away from everything else, but then, and, and you're filled with this, this fresh energy to follow hard after God, and then you find yourself right soon after caught into the snare of sin or anger or frustration. You know, that happens as churches too, right? Something exciting happens, a mountaintop experience for Grace Fellowship Church, and then soon after that, it's, it's as if we're in a, a, a moment of of, of division or fatigue or despair it seems like everything's going great and then all of a sudden it just comes crashing down i think often the the world and the flesh and the devil hit us hardest after mountaintop experiences and often i, I think darkness and difficulty look darker against the backdrop of having had that experience so what do we do with that here in luke 9 37 through 45 we're I think we are compelled, this may sound strange, but I think we're compelled to stare into the darkness. To look at the harsh realities of life in this fallen world. And I think that, that this is what God wants us to do, to stare into the into the darkness until we begin to see the light. I think that's the point of this passage, to look into the darkness until we see the light, to walk through the valley of the shadow of death until we come to the place where we fear no evil. you got to walk through that valley almost before you get to the place of fearing no evil. I mean, as much as we want to sit on that mountain, life is hard, right? I mean, isn't that true? Life is just hard. Um, I often think about the quote from the Princess Bride, Wesley. He says, life is pain highness anyone who says differently is trying to sell you something or anyone who says different is selling something make sure i get that right and we live in this culture that's that's selling something right they're selling something some some escape some entertainment some way to ignore reality or create that mountaintop experience some way to ignore the reality of the sinful world and the pain and the difficulty that surround us. But nothing that, that we can buy, nothing that we can watch, nothing that we can swallow can take away the harsh reality of life. And life is hard. I think it's okay to admit that. And I think that in some ways that's what we need to do is to stare into the darkness here. And if we stare into it with eyes of faith long enough, we will eventually see the light. We will see Jesus. You know that experience of standing outside and looking up into the night sky and it's pitch black and you don't see any stars? But if you're out there long enough, your eyes adjust to that darkness and suddenly the stars get brighter and brighter and brighter. And I think sometimes if we're in the darkness long enough, suddenly we start to see the light. Let's read Luke 9, the whole passage, 37 through 45, and think on this. Again, verse 37 says, On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met them. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. I think as we look at this passage, as we in this sense stare into the darkness, the first thing that we see is a desperate father. We see this desperate father. Imagine this great crowd. They come down and and from the midst of this crowd, you see a man crying out. He He is shouting. Picture this large crowd. The man is shouting and he is begging Jesus to help him, probably with tears in his eyes. It takes a lot to reduce a man in the midst of a crowd to yell and to beg for something, doesn't it? It would take a lot for me in the midst of a large crowd to start screaming and begging with tears in my eyes for someone to help me. He tells Jesus how bad his situation is. He's faced a lot. He says that he has a son. It's his only son, his only child, and that this son is being tormented by an evil spirit. And this spirit is seeking to destroy his son. Imagine being this father. You have Your only child is possessed by a spirit, a demon, and you are completely helpless to do anything about it this man is desperate and his, in his desperation he comes to Jesus well first actually he comes to his disciples and he's filled with with hope that they're going to be able to help him but as he shows up the disciples are unable to cast out this demon but but he sticks around he waits and waits for the day the next day when Jesus is going to come I, I assume that this that the disciples met this man while Jesus was on the mountaintop with Peter, James and John and then it's the next day when Jesus was on the mountain he he, he comes after he comes down uh, he comes and, and meets this crowd and the man is still there waiting and says Jesus help me I think that's the reality of our day isn't it? There are desperate people are people like this father right i mean they they don't know where to turn and, and I think we are often like this father We're desperate we need we need help there are situations, there are life circumstances that just they bring us to our knees, financial difficulties or health difficulties, or even like this guy the the sickness of a child, countless valleys that are very far away from mountaintop experiences that are just Hard. And just day-to-day life is sometimes hard. Sometimes going to work every morning is hard. And, and we cry out, we beg for help. And so maybe you relate to this guy on some level. You just say, I am desperate, I am in need of some help, Jesus. And as we look at that, as we see this desperate father in his anguish, we also see next this destroyed child. I think that's the right word for it. I'm not just doing it to to use another D. Uh, I think this child is being destroyed. The father describes the condition of his son, and it's horrific. He says that this spirit grabs his son, convulses him, shatters him, and will hardly leave him. Think about that. Imagine the constancy of what this man and this child deal with. That his son, daily, in an unexpected way, is seized by the spirit. This spirit grabs him and he cries out. He, he shrieks, as it were, probably in fear and in pain. He's walking through life and all of a sudden the spirit grabs a hold of him. It, it shakes him, as it were, back and forth in a, in a seizure of sorts so that the boy foams at the mouth. And it's the text says it shatters him. He crushes the boy. It's the word that's used when Mary breaks the alabaster flask of ointment to anoint Jesus. That's the word that he is, this boy is crushed. And it's clear in Matthew and Mark's accounts that, that this spirit is seeking to destroy this boy. Because the spirit would throw him into fire or throw him into water. So either to drown him or to burn him. This, this spirit is seeking to, to kill this child. And it's not something that's short-lived. It says the spirit will hardly leave him. It sticks around for a while. Some would say that this is just some sort of ancient understanding of, of epilepsy or seizures. Uh, I mean, I, I think ep- epilepsy is a, is a real thing. And I, and I don't think I would say everyone who has deals with seizures is therefore demon-possessed. But I think this is something different. Uh, because that's what it says. It says that there is a spirit that, that seizes him. This is something completely different. There's a demonic force that is seeking to destroy this child. And just as I believe that there are real medical issues in life, I believe that there is a real unseen world that contains demons and forces of darkness that would seek to destroy us. I believe in say, I believe Satan is real and that his followers desire to destroy us. There is something going on that we do not recognize. Uh, Satan has made kind of a joke in our day, isn't he? I mean, think about the guy in the red suit with the horns and the pitchfork. He's a joke. And, and demon possession and oppression is entertainment. That's a movie, right? That's what we watch to entertain ourselves. But this father and this son know that, that, that Satan is no joke and that this is not entertainment. The father is not entertained by this. They understand that Satan is a destroyer, that he's determined to wreak havoc in this world any way that he can. We read in Scripture that he is a roaring lion that wants to devour us. And Ephesians 6 tells us that, that we need a shield of faith to quench fiery darts that he is shooting at us to destroy us. That that we wrestle, the text says, and not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and spiritual wickedness in high places. This There's something going on in this world that we don't fully recognize, that we don't fully see. There is wickedness all around us. And we can't become consumed with this. There's people that get caught up in it, right? And everything is a demon and everything is caused by by Satan. But but just as that's the wrong thing to do, we also can't pretend that it doesn't exist. We have to strike some sort of balance here. And I think part of striking that balance is to realize that Satan is a destroyer. He is a destroyer who desires to bring death and destruction into this world. That's who he is. We see later in this passage, if you look... um, In verse 42, it says, While he, the the boy, was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. So as this boy is coming to Jesus, what does the Spirit do? Throws him to the ground and convulses him. And I think that teaches us something about about what Satan does in this world. He will do anything he can to keep us from coming to Jesus. (laughs) That's, That's Satan's major work. Let's do anything we can to keep this boy from getting to Jesus. When people who are not children of God by faith begin to take steps towards the Savior, then Satan is going to seek to stop them. That's reality. When people start to come to Jesus, they will be stopped. And if if he can, he will throw them to the ground with difficulties, with pain, with temptation. He will shake them with questions. He won't let them go. And so too, if we are children of God and we want to follow hard after God, we want to get closer to God, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be things that will, that will be thrown in our way, temptation to come in our way. We will be thrown to the ground with sickness and suffering, even distraction or laziness. Know this morning that there is an enemy that wants to keep you from getting closer to Jesus. Don't deny that reality. It's true. Something is, is, is fighting against us. The world, the flesh, and the devil are trying to keep us from getting closer to Jesus. He attacks. He is not, he has no respect for anyone. He desires to destroy. He has no mercy. Think about who he, who is he attacking here? A boy. A small child is who he's attacking. He'll seek to keep us from coming to Jesus, and he will do anything to keep us from bringing people to Jesus. If we're like the Father and we want to bring people to Christ, then he's going to do whatever he can to keep us from that. As we step towards the darkness, as we seek to snatch people from the clutches of the world and the flesh and the devil, then Satan is going to seek to stop us as we enter into our neighborhood. We are going to face opposition. The work of the ministry is not easy. My daughters were playing tag yesterday, and our youngest one, Noel, said, I'd like to play tag, but don't tag me, and when I want to tag you, let me tag you. (laughs) How is that the game, right? You're not going to tag me, but you have to let me tag you. It doesn't work that way. And I think sometimes we look at at our task as the church, and we think that's how it's going to be. We're just going to go out, and we're going to preach the gospel, and everyone's going to come to know Jesus, and we're going to solve all their problems. It, It doesn't work that way. There's opposition. We can't say, Satan, just kind of leave us alone and we're going to do our work. No, he's going to fight against us. There is opposition when we seek to bring people to Jesus. So as we're looking at this, we see this desperate father, we see this destroyed son. Then we see faithless disciples in the midst of a twisted generation. It's kind of sad that, you know, a big part of this section from verses 37 through 40, um, I'm sorry, through 50, is actually kind of the failure of the disciples. In light of who Jesus is, we start to get a picture for who the disciples are. And we notice here that it says in verse 40 that this man said, I begged your disciples to cast it out. But they could not. And you just picture the disciples on the side just kind of saying, we tried. I don't know. It didn't you know, worked every time before. They'd done this before, but for some reason it didn't work in this situation. Look at Jesus' response. This has been the thing that's been hard for me to understand fully. Jesus says, Oh, faithless and twisted, or the word there could be perverted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. That doesn't sound like a loving, kind Jesus, does it? I mean, this guy's coming. He wants some help. And what does Jesus say? Faithless and twisted generation. How long do I have to put up with you guys? I mean, that's something I've said in my life. I just don't expect Jesus to say that. What's going on here? Why is, Who is this directed at? Why is Jesus so frustrated who is he frustrated with i think it's i don't think it's directed at the man this guy's coming for help and we see later on his faith if you look in the parallel accounts this is the guy that says lord i believe help my unbelief i mean he's trying he's doing the best that he knows how to do i think i think it's probably directed towards the disciples and towards the crowd the disciples in the sense that that they are the ones that seem to be faithless They've seen Jesus, they've seen all this, and yet for some reason in this situation, maybe they look at it and it's just, this is too big. God, we, we lack faith that God can actually solve this problem. And I think the, the twisted generation, what does that mean? Um, I, I think Luke eleven twenty nine. Jesus says something similar. In Luke eleven twenty nine, 29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. Why? it seeks for a sign. I think that's part of the issue here is that they want a sign. Jesus do something amazing again. It's like in John 6 when he had just given them food and they show up and they say our fathers had, you know, were given bread in the wilderness and they ate. Maybe you can give us some more bread, Jesus. And so he looks and he's saying, you guys, you're missing the point. You just want me to keep doing these miracles and keep doing these miraculous things. That's, that's not the point. Remember where he's coming from. He's coming off the mountain where he's been reminded of the point of why he came. And then he has this crowd that just wants him to do more miracles. Do another trick, Jesus, and maybe we'll believe in you this time. So that's twisted. That, that's, that's strange. That, that's not the way it works. So we have this desperate father, this destroyed son. The disciples are struggling with their faith in the midst of this twisted generation that just kind of wants Jesus to perform tricks. But he does it. While the, the boy came, the demon threw him to the ground, convulsed him. But Jesus, what does he do? He rebukes the unclean spirit. He heals the boy. He gives him back to his father. And it says in verse 4 to 3, And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So you get the picture of the crowd. I mean, they are just loving. Oh, man, we have seen something amazing. But watch the contrast, okay? You probably have. A, I have a paragraph break. I don't know that there should be one there, but in verse 43, all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything He was doing, Jesus said to His disciples. So get this picture: He heals. Let's just imagine that's back here. He heals this this boy, and and, and then He turns. And he looks at the disciple and you can just imagine everyone's back here whooping and hollering and, and they're excited. They're filled with joy. And what does Jesus do? He looks at his disciples and he says, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Isn't that a contrast when you think about it? I, I mean, they're excited and Jesus turns and says, I will be delivered into the hands of men. He, he brings almost this sense of, of darkness and doom into the midst of something that's so joyful. He's saying... A, a, that he is a deliverer who is going to be delivered into the hands of wicked men. I think he's trying to bring home the reality. He's saying, guys, this isn't how it's always going to be. Remember, he's, he's trying to get them to understand the kind of Messiah that he is. He's not the Messiah that's coming to cut to conquer always, but rather he's the Messiah that is going to die. He's going to be rejected and he's going to be mocked and he's going to be crucified. And then he will rise again. And that's how they are going to live. And so he says, guys, this is not, this is not the full picture. I am going to be delivered into the hands of men. And, and amazingly, they look at him and they have no idea what he's talking about. It says in verse 45 that they are um, disbelieving, blind, and fearful. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. I think this is what often keeps people from Jesus in the same way that the disciples are kept from understanding things. That they don't understand. They just don't know. People don't know the truth of the gospel. But the next thing is that they are blinded. That it was concealed from them. What in the world is going on here? We talked a little bit about this actually in in Sunday school. That there is a veil over our hearts that we don't understand it. 2 Corinthians um, chapter 3. This is, the parallel is drawn to to Moses. Remember, we talked about him last week with the veil that he came down. And it says in 2 Corinthians 3.12, Since we have such a hope, we are bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses has read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. There is a veil over the hearts of all people. There are people that hear, but don't hear. There are people that see, but they don't see. And the disciples here, they get it, but they don't fully get it. It is concealed from them. And they are afraid. They're scared to ask. I think I'd be scared too. They've kind of just been rebuked by Jesus in some ways, haven't they? And now they're scared to ask what this all means. Do you see the darkness of this? I guess that's what I'm trying to help us see. You've got this, this desperate father, this son that is being destroyed by a demon. You've got faithless disciples in a twisted generation. You've got a, a savior who says he's going to be delivered into the hands of men and be killed. And you've got disciples that are disbelieving, blind, and fearful. Uh, this is not a really pretty picture when you look at it, right? It's dark. It's dark. I think this is this is reality in life sometimes for us. Life is hard. Faith is hard. Walking with Jesus is difficult. Sometimes we don't know what He's saying. He says things, and I, I think I don't know what that means, Jesus. I don't know what you want me to do, or or, or we're afraid, or or we're blind, or we just don't understand. What I think is, we look into this darkness, the light starts to shine. Think about that desperate father and that destroyed son. Jesus brings hope and joy to the desperate father and the destroyed son, doesn't he? This man is, is, is lost. He doesn't know what to do. But Jesus, after saying, oh, faithless and twisted generations, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Is that all he says? No, he says, bring your son here. And the son comes and, and Jesus as he takes this spirit and he rebukes this spirit. He heals the boy and he gives this boy back to his father it's the same thing remember when he raised that the boy the the son that had died it was the widow's only son and he had raised that son and he gave the son back to his mother in the same instance here jesus casts out this demon he heals this boy and he gives him back to the father This is Jesus' victory over Satan in the midst of darkness. Jesus still has power to cast out this demon. And as we face opposition, as we recognize, yes, there is opposition in this world, we look to this and we say, but Jesus can rebuke and heal and restore. That's the reality of, of who he is. And yes, it is dark sometimes, and it will be dark, and we will face opposition. But if Jesus is with us, he brings hope, he brings joy. Not only that, but Jesus reveals the majesty of God to a faithless and twisted generation. They are faithless. They are twisted. And that's that's us so often, isn't it? That we are faithless. We just don't believe. And we don't know what we're... we twist things wrongly. But what happens in verse 43? All were astonished at the majesty of God. Jesus reveals the majesty of God to a faithless and twisted generation. He doesn't require them. He doesn't say, you better have faith first before I'm going to reveal anything to you. No, he he reveals who he is, just as he had done on the Mount of Transfiguration. He, he, he had revealed who he is. And here, it's the same idea. They are astonished at what? The majesty of God. God himself is revealed in, in the way that Jesus heals this boy. Not only that, but you think about he's being delivered into the hands of wicked men. And yet at the same time, he is in full control of what is going on. Do you remember what he said back in the transfiguration? He spoke about his departure, which he was about to accomplish. They think that they're in control, but they're not. Jesus is in full control of what's going on. We wonder, you know, Jesus makes this statement here, right? He heals him, and then he says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Why does he say that there? Why does he make this statement? I think in large part it's, again, to help the disciples see uh, that as they're rejoicing at the majesty of God, that that the kingdom is breaking in, that Satan is being thrown down, that ultimate victory is not yet. That that his entire life and ministry are, in fact, pushing towards this moment. He says, this is good, but something bigger has to happen. I need to be delivered into the hands of men. I need to accomplish full salvation. That, That all these miracles point to what the ultimate miracle is. But think about this. Think about Jesus having just had this this moment where he's with his father. And, and his father communicates this deep love and reiterates the mission that Jesus has. And then he comes off the mountain and who does he meet? He meets a father. <laughs> a father with a son that's in a desperate situation. I, I think there's parallels. I, I think as we, as we think about this, that... That Jesus looks and he says, this is this is my father, that I'm going to be placed into the hands of sinful man, that I'm going to submit to being shaken and being crushed by the forces of evil and that his father would be in anguish as well. And even 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 in that, that his father would be pouring out his own wrath on his own son, that Jesus would be taking the penalty of sin on his body. And yet even in the midst of that, in the darkest of days, we, we see the brightest light, that the death and resurrection of Jesus are how he defeats all the powers of Satan, so that none can stand against him. That, that in this, in delivering himself into the hands of men, he is not destroying himself, And destroying us, but he's actually delivering us from the one that wants to destroy us. He provides deliverance by delivering himself over to the powers of Satan. And the disciples don't understand this. But by God's grace, we do. By God's grace, we we see it. There is darkness, there is a veil here. But verse 45 if you are a true follower of Jesus, is not true. You understand what he means. The Spirit has revealed this truth to you. And not only that, but but it's not concealed. That the veil has been taken away. We we see with eyes of faith, oh, this is what he means. And they were we're not afraid to come to the Father anymore. That that we can ask him anything. So in the midst of, of, of the darkness that the disciples are facing, we see the full picture. He gives faith, he gives us sight, he adopts us as his children, we can come to him. Boldly. But, but I would say I'm sure that there's some here today that, that you are, you don't understand. And you are blind. And you're afraid. It's a fearful thing to come before God in this way. But, but the reality is that, that Jesus comes to bring deliverance. This is, this is who he is. He's the son of man that's delivered into the hands of man. He 's the son of man that that comes to bring salvation he 's the the son of man that is victorious over Satan and hell and sin and if we put our faith in him then then if we if we see the truth of the gospel that Jesus came to live and to die and to rise again to take the penalty from our sin if we will if we will turn from sin. If we will turn away from the world, the flesh, and the devil and come to Jesus by faith, then he will give us eyes to see this truth and he will adopt us as his children. We will no longer be afraid in his presence. We will see the majesty of God. We will see this power over darkness. It's a dark picture, I think. I think it's it's difficult to look and to see this this little boy being thrown down, it's difficult to see this desperate father. It's hard to see faithless disciples, this twisted generation. It's hard to think about Jesus going to the cross. It's hard to think about the disciples being lost. But yet, in the midst of all that darkness, there's, there's hope. That, that the father and the, and the son receive this gift from Jesus that he brings healing, that he defeats Satan. And we know that, that, that even as Satan keeps us from Jesus and desires to, to, to keep anyone from coming near to him, that, that he is the conqueror and that Jesus is victorious over Satan. And even in the midst of a, of a twisted and faithless generation that Jesus gives us faith and he reveals the majesty of God so that we can understand who he is and, and what the disciples didn't understand. That Jesus had to be delivered so that we could be delivered from Satan and from sin. We understand. We've been given eyes of faith and minds and hearts that can understand these truths. Well, I pray that you would continue to read this passage. I think there's more in here. I think it's something to meditate on deeply and to think more as we look next week at verses 46, 46 through 50. But let's take a moment of silence to reflect on God's word this morning. And then I will close this in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. These are never, (laughs) these are things I would never on my own think about, preach about, and yet it's in your word. And so we want to proclaim the truth of it. Lord, we realize that this world is a dark place. And that Satan is seeking to keep us from you, to keep others from you, to keep us from bringing people to you. He is a destroyer. And yet, Lord, we see that you are victorious over him, that you have brought victory in the midst of darkness. On the darkest of days, Lord, you defeated sin and hell and Satan himself. Lord, give us eyes to see that. This week, as we face difficulties in life, as life gets hard, that we would recognize, Lord, that you are in control, that you are powerful over all the forces that would come against us, and that we have hope in you. Help us to to see that with eyes of faith. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.